Welcome to a bonus episode of Under Our Feet. Last week we learned about copper nickel mining in northeast Minnesota and the chemistry and hydrology of why that mining is risky in a sensitive and clean watershed. We also talked about the value of the Boundary Waters wilderness as a tourist economy driving the region and of wild rice which depends on that clean pristine water. One of the people we heard from was Frank Bebo, a tribal attorney with an innovative legal solution to protect the waters of northern Minnesota from the risks of extraction. In making that episode, I had to cut a lot of our conversation, but I think it's important to hear the whole thing, so today I'm releasing a lightly edited version of that conversation. You heard parts of this in episode 5, but this gives the full context. We talk about the value of wild rice, some of the legal strategies and precedents behind Frank's case, about what pipelines and mining mean to the waters of the Northwoods, and about how regulatory agencies operate relative to these extractive processes. And just one note here, I'll refer to the indigenous people as Anishinaabe. Frank often uses Chippewa or Ojibwe. There's a complex history to these terms that I encourage you to read more about, but for now, just know that they're mostly synonymous. Anyways, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Under Our Feet, the podcast where we go deep into the earth and deep into time to explore the geologic forces and events that shape the world around us. This is a bonus episode of Season 1, The Geology of Wisconsin, plus the broader Lake Superior region. And before we get going, just a reminder to visit uofpod.org or follow us on Twitter at uofpod. At uofpod.org, you can find a link to support the show on Patreon. For any money I receive in the months of November or December 2021, I'll donate half of that to an organization that can help Frank out, Honor the Earth. More on that towards the end of this episode, but you can visit their website at honorearth.org. Okay, on to the interview. So I was wondering if you could start just by introducing yourself and what you do briefly. Oh man, I don't even know if there's boundaries anymore. So... My name is Frank Bebo. I'm a tribal attorney. I work primarily with Indian law on the Chippewa Reservation, Leech Lake, where I live, White Earth, where I'm enrolled. Um, All the Minnesota Chippewa tribe reservations. I do a lot of different things. I'm the executive director of the 1855 Treaty Authority. A lot of times I'm an election judge um, with the Minnesota Chippewa tribe elections, things like that. you know, I've, I've just got a whole bunch of different things because there's not very many attorneys in our group, you know, in, in terms of the tribe. And so um, I'm working for White Earth on line three and treaty rights. I'm working with Honor the Earth on the same kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm piecing it all together and working with everybody and for everybody all at the same time. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, and so I guess, you know, you're working on the pipeline issues, it sounds like mostly, and I'm coming at this from the copper sulfide mining. So I was wondering if you, if you sort of had any ideas about the connections between sort of those two things as extractive in the in Northern Minnesota, if that makes any sense. Sure. Sure. And I talked with Fred for a while about this because, you know, there is no way to avoid what's happening up North. Just to note, Fred is Fred Campbell, the geologist who we talked to in episode five. He's known Frank for a long time and helped us to connect. I, I live um, 
primarily on Leech Lake Reservation. Um, you know, I'm I'm in Virginia right now with my mom for 30 days. We're getting ready to move her to South Carolina. I mean, you know, I'm I'm pretty mobile kind of guy here, taking turns out here and different things. And my dad was born up by Hibbing on the range, and that's in the 1855 ceded territory. We'll hear Frank reference the 1855 and 1854 ceded territory throughout this interview. These are large tracts of land covering much of the northern half of Minnesota. The rest of northern Minnesota was ceded in a series of treaties through 1889. When the Anishinaabe ceded these lands to the United States, they retained their rights to hunt, fish, and gather, and otherwise maintain a level of their previous activities on the land. Though ceded land is distinct from reservations, where tribes actually maintain governance. Throughout this interview, Frank will refer to this land sometimes as just the 54 or the 55. It's also where the, what we call the Hill of the Three Sisters. And that's where the subcontinental divide, or the Northern Laurentian Divide, the Southern Laurentian Divide, and then the divide that goes through the Great Lakes um, to the Atlantic. They all meet right there at one point. And there, there's a meeting stone there because the people who lived here a long time ago already knew what it was. You didn't have to have the local scientists today, you know, figure out where the center of that, that uh, three watersheds met. So, so I understand those things, um, you know, for me and family history with mining and different things, the, the common aspect is the extraction and the desire to sell whatever you think you've gotten, you know, to make a profit. And, Usually those people aren't the same people that live where the extraction occurs. They don't have a vested interest in preserving the environment. And usually at some point, no matter what they say, they become ruthless to get whatever they want. And, and you know, we've seen that adapt with Standing Rock. I mean, it's just uh, amazing how this can be. That's the Dakota Access Pipeline, where massive protests broke out in 2016 and 2017 to counter a pipeline that crossed beneath a reservoir that was important for the Standing Rock Sioux. A lot of Frank's work is centered around making sure these pipeline projects don't threaten indigenous people's rights to clean water. His current focus, which he'll talk more about later, is called Line 3, being built through Minnesota by Enbridge. Often, these projects are routed through or near tribal land to avoid other communities, so it's clear why there's such resistance. So, yeah, it's sad in that regard I, I think the metal mining industry in particular here, you know, is because of the long-term mining that's occurred, it seems more like a natural fit to a lot of people who are engaged in mining. You know, they don't see it the same as a pipeline coming through and necessarily the same kind of uh, gas emissions and, and other kinds of pollutants. But in actuality, it is the same exact culprit because while I'm engaged in activities with line three, um, you know, and talking with Fred Campbell yesterday and things like that, kind of, you know, catching up on things that I already figured were where they are. As Chippewa, we have an interest in territory, a common interest in territory from Michigan to North Dakota. And so what's happening up there um, is right where the boundary of the 1854-1855 seated territories are. But because of our our common interest. And when I say common interest, in the 1842 treaty, the United States um, provided that all of us were going to get the same kind of payments on these land deals because they found out that we were going to try to one-up each other to, over the United States. And so they made all of the land in common 
that was presently um, ceded by the Chippewa of Lake Superior in the Mississippi, and then all the lands yet to be ceded would be held in common by the Chippewas of Lake Superior in the Mississippi. So we have the same rights across a very vast territory. And so it's a question of how many fights you can be in. Who's the local fire department? So Fond du Lac has been a lead over there. And I would say they're the strongest leader over there. But at the same time, Fond du Lac was in the line three fight and the PUC, because they support the, the pipeline, what Frank is describing here is the Public Utilities Commission of Minnesota's decision on how to route the Line 3 Embridge pipeline. The Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa is leading indigenous opposition to the proposed copper mines in the area. But, as Frank is about to tell us, they were kind of forced into letting Line 3 pass through their reservation. The PUC, because they support the, the pipeline, um, they were going to go right through probably our most... Uh, important, significant, cultural, sacred place, Sandy Lake area, center of our universe in many ways. And nobody wanted that. And so it became Fond du Lac had a choice to have the pipeline come back through the reservation again on a northern route, which they did. And that's for jurisdictional reasons as well, because if if they didn't, then the plan was to just run a couple miles south of the boundary of the Fond du Lac reservation and say, well, now you don't have any right to tell us what to do. Now, I disagree with all of that. And I mean, all of us do. But I've been working with rights of Monoman because I believe in Monoman. And I just always have for other reasons and defended it and represented it um, with Winona LaDuke. And it goes back a long, long way, even back into the labeling um, litigation back in the late 80s. And, and so it's ironic in some ways that Monoman that, you know, we were brought to the Great Lakes area and where we are in northern Minnesota because of prophecies about where the food grows on the water and that, you know, it would feed us, it would sustain us and all those things. It's still doing it. It's still protecting us. Now, it takes a translator or two, and I might be one of those translators. I don't know that I can say I'm a Monoman whisperer, that Monoman, you know, and I have this, you know, secret relationship that others don't have because I can tell you all the other Indians have a relationship with it, too. And, and so it's, it's very interesting that way. But so, so as it turns out, protecting wild rice may be the best um, standard for mining problems as well as the pipeline, gas emissions, climate change, and everything else, because it's a victim of all of those things. It's susceptible to all of those things. And almost everybody already knows that. And almost everybody knows that we have a treaty right to it already because of all the other things that we're doing. And that's supreme law of the land stuff. That's right in the constitution. And in a treaty, you know, that's pretty high to have the words wild rice in it. So it's those things I almost want to say, I don't want to say they're bulletproof, but compared to almost any other treaty, any other plant, any other entity, I don't know another match. So, you know, even if it said the right to um, catch fish and hunt deer or catch salmon you would have to almost have that specific term and i don't see those terms because they were broad they were very broad but wild rice was unique to us and the location was unique to us so that's why we made sure that it was incorporated and and so when i look at the the water problems that are happening over there you know fred and i go way back i mean we go back 35 years and uh 
you know, Fred was telling me the story of what I already knew, but, you know, he was also aware of the regulatory capture. And, and essentially he called me because he knows, he knows what I'm doing with the rights of Monoman um, against the Department of Natural Resources right now. And that the other smart um, scientists can see that the other smart attorneys may not be able to prevail trying to rely on state law. We weren't able to prevail relying on state law. Now we caused the process to take seven years, you know, but ultimately all it did was result in various mitigation strategies that were then later approved by the PUC or the court of appeals or something. And, and so then it was still deemed good to go when it wasn't good to go. And, you know, we've got an aquifer breach um, by Enbridge. Here, Frank's describing a place where drilling for the pipeline's path accidentally or carelessly tapped a groundwater aquifer, and now tons of waters are just spilling out of it every day. It's called a frack-out, and this can occur whenever someone drills horizontally beneath a waterway. It leads to potential contamination of that water, and Frank's going to talk more about this in a second, but despite months of efforts, Enbridge has not been able to repair this frack-out. And we've probably got more than one aquifer beach, and I'm talking about an artesian aquifer that's pumping out 100,000 gallons or more of water a day. And that's important, especially during a drought. They weren't able to contain it. They still aren't able to contain it as far as I know. MnDOT had a similar breach and, and to do a roadway, and they haven't been able to contain that one, and that one was some time ago. So the scientists that I'm talking to tell me that our aquifers, where the pipelines have crossed primarily under um, waterways, rivers, Mississippi, they're probably all going to have frack outs and they're probably going to be permanent irreparable damage that will pump out those suspended solids and things, um, where the pipe went under in terrain that they didn't comprehend very well. They think in terms of drilling through rock and hard ground, they don't understand that when you're in a glacial area, that it's sand, it's gravel, it's porous, it's got, you know, other organic debris and, and marsh and, and, you know, different things like that. So, so they have probably under every river crossing blowouts that have a whole bunch of extra fracking uh, mud and other materials in there that right now with the cold weather won't be detectable or observable by DNR or MPCA unless you're looking because all the water is going to be contained in snow and ice. And so starting next spring, when the aquifers are recharged by rain or snow melt, that's when those things will start coming out. And they'll be coming out every year. They'll be coming out forever, it sounds like. You know, we don't know how much is down there. Um, Enbridge and or the DNR, they pulled their no trespassing signs. We're able to tell by drone that they've walked away. No one's monitoring, you know. So even though we were at the front of the process telling them, no, this is stupid and these kinds of things can happen, you know, they were dismissed. They dismissed our treaty rights as well. And, and so we're having to take a different course of action. You know, I, I'm working with a whole bunch of non-Indian attorneys who find it hard to believe that rights of monoman in tribal court could actually do something. And so I kind of had to wait my turn to the end until all the other strategies are proven not to work. And, and I get that. I went to those same law schools. I'm indoctrinated. I was colonized, you know, with that kind of legal thinking. But but I'm not colonized where I live. I'm part of the resistance where I live, you know. And so so I see that the rights of Monoman should also be applied over at the mining area under the wild rice standards. 
Um, I'm aware of three or four things that the PCA has done against us, as well as the state, with regards to wild rice uniquely that, you know, are intentional disregard for our rights. And so that gives me more cause to do it. The recent Supreme Court decision with that mining. Here, what I think Frank is talking about is a Minnesota state Supreme Court decision from April that halted polymets mining permit process and cited a need for state agencies to consider the science of potential watershed contamination more thoroughly in their permitting process. Go back and listen to episode 5 if you haven't already for much more on that. And this decision is distinct from the proposed mining moratorium that the Biden administration is putting on. The recent Supreme Court decision with that mining tells me that the PCA has more obligation to, um, to regulate and enforce and that could mean things as much as um, feedlot runoff and other kinds of things. And so it may very well be that what we need to do, even from White Earth, is um, file another suit against the PCA, not just in the 55, but also in the 54. And maybe those bands, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the amicus brief, but there were seven Chippewa bands in the amicus brief in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And six of those are in Wisconsin. And Right now, and this is just my own thinking without talking to him, is that they're trying to prevent the wolf hunt and other things, you know, that are important to our culture and to our resources and food chain and ecosystem. And while the state or while the federal court judge said he wasn't going to rule, and it's because of procedural stuff at the state level, maybe they should be looking at rights of the wolf, rights of Mayinga. You know, um, I had a friend of mine call me and he was talking about carbon caption, carbon caption carbon capture credits and explain it a little bit to me, which sounds a little like Bitcoin and dot com, but neither, neither here nor there, but we started talking about what would be that kind of mechanism. And that mechanism might be the rights of trees. We have a symbiotic relationship with trees. We can't live without trees anymore. And we can live without water. We got to have somebody making oxygen for us, you know? So how do we protect that? And how do we protect our other resources? So, I think we're going to start looking at more strategies in Indian country. The Eighth Circuit uh, decision is going to be very important. You know, a lot of people are looking at that. That's one of the reasons Fred called me. That's one of the reasons you're checking with me. And, you know, the ironic part is because of Fond du Lac having to peel out of the Line 3 fight, and certainly they were compensated for the crossing and things by Enbridge and other things. And I'm sure part of the agreement is not to come out and speak out any evil against Enbridge while we're doing all this because you know we can see that's what the agreement is at the same time they probably as much as they might like to launch a rights of monoman fight they don't want it to look like they're saying hey rights of monoman should control because then it would control line three and Enbridge and they have an agreement with them so they're not going to be the ones to do it and they're probably the strongest ones that should be doing it you have another couple bands up there that have been participating, but I don't think they've been the lead bands over at uh, Grand Portage and, and Boys Forge or, or however you like to call that, Net Lake. And, and so we have property rights, water property rights, and other interests that are at stake right there in the 54. And looking at that also would give us the opportunity to look at what's happening with Rio Tinto Talon mining down by Sandy Lake. And that's probably even more scary. And so as I've talked with different people along the way, what it looks like to us in Indian country 
same as line three, you know, the sandpiper was a decoy to establish a route for line three. Well, the stuff that's going on up here at the mines and that Supreme Court decision should have more impact on what's going on with, with that talent mining. But I'm not so sure that it is going to have it. And so we may have to launch our litigation against the PCA permitting before they get too far down the road there as well. And what we understand perceptually without being told clearly, you know, you can tell when people are doing nothing, you have to figure out why. So why didn't the United States and Joe Biden do anything? Why didn't the Corps of Engineers step in on line three when there was no EIS by the Trump administration? You know, why is it that the DNR is walking away right now and the PCA is walking away right now? Because they're in league with Enbridge. They need campaign contributions. And and I'll I'll tell you, I think there's only six places. You can tell me the seventh, but it's it's big oil, it's mining and minerals, and then it's the, the drug companies and the doctors and, and whatever you want to call it. And then after that, you think, well, who else has a whole bunch of money for campaign contributions? The three guys who launched rockets this year, who's number seven? I don't know. Right. Nobody does. So if you have to make sure your party gets some of that big oil money and some of that mining money, you got to stand with them. And they're standing against us. So it's it's really a crazy thing. And that's probably why the DNR is really concerned about us suing them in tribal court, because they can't even believe it's happening. It hasn't really happened before. And the creator has held me back from going in sooner, whether it's through the other attorneys, state litigation or whatever. Um, but probably the most important decision out of all of what's going on right now is a decision called Kodiak Oil um, from 2019 in the Eighth Circuit. Now, the DNR doesn't understand what it says very well. There's a lot of words in English in there, and, you know, they should understand that right on the cover, it says that Kodiak successfully or, or you know, used, used up their administrative remedies before filing in federal court. That's not what the DNR has done. The DNR has ran to the federal court and says, don't let those Indians take us to tribal court and don't tell us we don't have immunity against them, because that means they could actually have some decision making capability. Huh. Leveling the environmental playing field for permitting processes is what I think I've developed. You know, I haven't done it by myself by any stretch, but right now the tribes, especially the Chippewa tribes, we have common treaties, common lands, common waters. They're getting on board. They can see that I've probably figured it out now, you know, what that means, what our limits are. I'm not sure, but I believe it's environmental jurisdiction. If we have the right to hunt, fish, and gather, then we have a right to protect those resources from harm from the other predators. And those predators include Cain and Abel. And while they were brothers, the one was ripping off the other one and had to be killed. We're going to have to vanquish DNR and the state, apparently, to some degree, until they come into some kind of a cooperative law enforcement agreement, some type of a cooperative environmental agreement, some type of a, a water permitting agreement. Because everything I can see from our treaty rights says that we should be able to require consent because if we have that property in common with ourselves and we don't have it with the state of Minnesota or the federal government, then a separate property owner, usually you need their consent to take their property and transfer it to another. Unless of course you're the law. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I'm, I talked to friends of the boundary waters the organization about about this too and so like i 
I'm familiar with thinking about the Boundary Waters as a federally protected wilderness. And so I'm curious, like what, given all the, the, the treaty rights, what's your and your community's perspective on like that piece of land um, that, you know, is talked about as a federally protected wilderness, even though people, it's not wild, people have lived there, thrived there for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Indian law is a funny thing. And, and that's why DNR isn't doing very good in federal court. Um, any place that the federal government has land, aside from like, say, a military base that's active or a nuclear power place or something that's got, you know, cyclone fences and barbed wire and things like that. Um, federal lands are our primary place to go and exercise our rights to hunt, fish and gather. And there's some federal decisions on that. Gotchnik is one of them. USB Gotchnik. I don't know if you've looked at that. It's G-O-T-C-H. NIK, I believe, Gotchnik. And in there, um, it was a challenge. There were some tribal members who had gone into the boundary waters and they were fishing through the ice. And what they said, even though I don't agree with it, um, because of the way Congress had set aside that place to be, you know, a pristine environment, that we still had the right to exercise our rights to go in there and fish but we didn't have a right to use a vehicle to get us to that place to fish. You know, the gas burning, carbon emitting, you know, gas house emission device, we weren't allowed to bring that in as a device to get there. But once we were there, we were allowed to use modernized equipment because it's the same for everybody. So if you're using a, you know, sonar equipment, you're using a net, you're using a line, you can use modern equipment to harvest, but because of, the other kinds of environmental damage, you couldn't go in there, you know, some big gas hog thing and whatever equipment and bulldoze out a road. Those are all wrong. And in some ways, I agree with that. But, you know, the thing I like about that case, because I believe in the right to travel, is that it says that we don't have an absolute right to travel. And then they spelled out why we didn't have it there with modernized equipment like a snowmobile or side by side or whatever to get out there. And so now that's out there to help us too. You know, it's going to make it harder for other people, I think, because we have those rights. And, and that's the same model that I try to point to when I'm pointing to our other resource places. So we have a right to travel. And so even when we're protesting, and that's, you know, not really why you called, but, you know, part of our strategy with rights of Monoman was to create a defense for water protectors before they criminalize civil rights of the citizens. This refers to the water protector movement, an indigenous women-led push to stop development that threatens clean water everywhere. Because the state often sides with the companies building these projects, it uses its power to oppose water protectors. That means they often end up in jail or charged with crimes for obstructing development that threatens water. Frank thinks his wild rice case on the rights of Monoman could help protect the water protectors, from criminal liability for standing up to development. And so, you know, we're working on having those treaty rights recognized. The courts called the rights to hunt, fish, and gather use of property property rights. Water is a property right, and we have those rights. So if we have those property rights, then like people who have a car or a house for property, they can invite guests. We can invite guests. We can't be trespassers on our own property, so they can't charge us with trespass, no matter how they like to frame the other words around it. And if you can't charge us with trespass, then you can't trust. You can't charge us with nuisance, and you can't charge us with unlawful assembly. And 
and there was a decision with one of the water protector camps um, about an easement to some land that was tax forfeit land. And that's why the county said we needed an easement again. It's like they were selling an easement every time to the same place that had a house at the water protector camp. And at the end of the decision, the judge said, I think three things. I can only remember two because they were most important. But one said that she was not interfering with the police's lawful execution of criminal powers and by warrant. And essentially what she was saying was, you didn't do those things. And that's why I'm interfering with you here. And then she said, and they have an easement that's been valid for a long time, and that's good for them and their invited guests. So even the non-Indians who have come as our invited guests to help be water protectors, they're on our property. And they're our invited guests. And you may not be able to prosecute them for trespass as well in other activities because they're with us. And so I'm using our treaty rights in a way that nobody's been using our treaty rights. You know, I've worked in legal services. I've worked in public defenders. It's usually the poorest and the unemployed people that come out to defend these resources because they have the time and, and they, have, they rely on the resources. People with a 40-hour week job, man, they're inside saying, well, maybe I can give to the NRDC or something like that. You know, and that's that's something, but it's not constructive engagement. Awesome. Well, thanks. Um, so, I I, I want to make sure we, we you touched on this earlier. So so what's the value of wild rice here in your community and and the history of that a little bit more specifically focused there on wild rice? Well, you know, I, I don't want to say it the wrong way because, you know, religion's a funny thing. But, you know, if wild rice is right up there at the top with your religion, you know, it's not too far down from the angels and Jesus Christ, son of God, you know, so. So what do you do about those kinds of places? What do you do about the cemeteries where your ancestors are buried and they have these grave markers? Do you protect them or just let the pipeline come through? You know, do you, how does that work out? And so it's hard for people to make that spiritual transition, I think, to where we would see wild rice as important as other people, you know, or vice versa. But there's enough written about it. It's obvious that people know that we have a very strong spiritual and cultural connection to it. So we don't have any choice but to step up. So, you know, and that's the same for water, you know? And, and so those two things compel us in a way. And I think it's called other people spiritually for our water protector camps at line three or for standing rock and things like that. KXL, it calls people to come and stand. It just doesn't call everybody and not everybody hears the call. So when I, when I look at wild rice, you know, I've known about it all my life. I know that my dad was a ricer. I know that he produced rice and processed rice and that my grandfather, you know, I've got his old canoe and that old canoe was his brother's canoe. So when you're trying to figure out how important wild rice is, you know, you, 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 you almost have to participate at every level. And so when I was younger and stronger, I'd go out and pick a lot of rice and maybe I'd get some finished to eat. Now that I'm an old guy, I buy rice right at the landing from many canoes, and I have a plant that I inherited from my cousin who passed away, and I go and process wild rice so that we have finished wild rice. I try to make that plant available for other people to bring their rice and process it, maybe get a cut of it or something, and let them learn how to process their rice, because that's been taken away from us. That whole educational step about how do you take this off the lake and turn it into food you can eat, and while we know the steps, 
We don't always know where we can engage in those steps. And, and that's what keeps your culture alive. In that, in that talk I watched, you, you talked about the wild rice economy um, it, it, up there. And so w- what is the wild rice economy versus the extractive economy? Um, like what, 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 what could an economy based on wild rice look like or what does it look like in the past? Oh, man, it was tremendous in the past. You know, I mean, it's just been routine for us in a way, you know, because we had a long, long, long relationship with it before, you know, colonization or whatever you want to call it from the French and the English and everybody in the United States. And and so wild rice, once it was discovered as a food, it was as valuable to trade, I'm sure, as furs and metal and kettles and knives. And you can probably go down the list. There was a, a direct value to it in the trade economy. Now, as you come forward... And I've looked through the National Archives and things like that and all this. And as you come forward, you see, and right in Cass Lake there on Leech Lake Reservation, there was a log cabin that I used to have a, a work for the legal department there. And there was this grain silo next door to the old uh, train station because they moved the train line um, probably about four or five blocks south of where it used to exist along Highway 2. And so there were some people out there doing a garden and they were painting the outside of this, uh, this old elevator. And it was only probably 50 foot tall, you know, a short elevator. And I didn't know anything about it. And I was out there to talk to them about it. And they told me that it used to be a wild rice elevator. And that meant that the train stopped in Cass Lake and there was tons of wild rice waiting for them in that hopper, just like you would any other grain that these farmers take to the elevators by the railroad. And it wasn't the only elevator. These elevators were all over the place. So it was the only grain that was actually being transported and stored like that at that time. And, and so when you look at the amount of wild rice and then, and then the way it caught on out East and things like that as a delicacy and things, you can see where it started being transformed where I'll say like in the 40s and 50s, they started flying Indians into remote locations with wild rice and they would fly in the canoes and they would fly in these little motors off of these old Model A, Model T's and they'd have these thrashers and parchers and different things. And, and because wild rice takes like about three to one, two to one to three to one green to make a pound of rice, you don't want to haul twice as much crap. You want the finished product. You want the gold. You don't want the rock that the gold's attached to. And so they would have people out there for weeks doing these rice camps in places that they didn't even grow up in, but they knew that we could go in there and do that. And, and it's amazing to even think that that's what we were doing at that time. And it got to be so valuable that the, before we had better controls that the non-Indians, especially the farmers had figured out how to make floating combines to go out on top of the lakes and almost eat hundred percent efficiently harvest the wild rice to where there wasn't any grain falling back into the lake for reseeding. And so our methods of harvest from a canoe, when you're, when you're laying over the rice with one stick and knocking it with the other, a lot of times the rice just goes all over the place and reseeds. So we're, we're a symbiotic part of that relationship. The relationship of the, the colonizers or however you want to call it, they want it all. They don't understand you know, that when it says it's wild, that you still got to let it regenerate itself. You can't just take all of its young, all of its babies, and then see if it's going to, you know, have eggs for the next salmon hatch. You know, you got to leave part of nature there. 
And so at one point, there's a bill that came out and there was litigation between the federal government and the state of Minnesota about the probably the greatest wild rice lake on White Earth Reservation. And the federal government used its eminent domain against Minnesota to take that back and create that wild rice reserve for the Chippewa because we were in danger of starvation is the way they call it. And so by restoring that, we had a way to get our own food because otherwise the government was going to have to take care of us. They didn't like that either. And the funny part is they could see how important it was for trade purposes, for food purposes, and even cultural purposes and not being at odds that then when you look at the National Archives, you can see where they're trying to figure out how to transplant wild rice to the Apache and the Arapaho and all these other places. They're like, well, maybe these Indians can feed themselves in these places we've made them go and live. Well, wild rice lives in one place. It lives with us. You know, so the value of wild rice is, is incredible. So then you get into, into the 80s and they started getting better with their paddy rice. This is an important part of wild rice history. For decades, scientists from the University of Minnesota and elsewhere had been trying to genetically engineer wild rice to grow well in a rice paddy and to be easy to harvest with high yields. Clearly, this isn't real wild rice, but it might be what you buy when you buy wild rice in the grocery stores. This rice also doesn't support indigenous economies, even though it might be marketed that way. So if you're buying wild rice, make sure you do a little due diligence and get the real deal. It even tastes better, too. Websites like nativeharvest.com let you buy it directly from the source. And that's when the DNR was working with them and the Department of Agriculture. And they're allowing them to take water off the river and then put it into paddies where they planted rice. And it's, you know, it's been genetically modified so that it stands more to uniform height for combine harvesting because they drain the paddy several weeks ahead of time so you can go in with, like, boards on your track. And then... They made it so that the grains wouldn't fall off over time. And that was one of the things that made it nice for us was we could go out onto natural wild rice and you could harvest. If you're gentle enough with the plant, you can harvest that same plant three, four, five times because not all the grains fall off. They're not already ripe. And so they want it all at one time. And, and then they also wanted to make sure that, you know, you could put insecticides and pesticides and try to, you know, protect it that way. And then at the end, when they drain all that water off, they'd run that water right back into the Mississippi River because they didn't have another place to run it off to. So they're killing our stuff in the river. So we were fighting that at first. But, you know, because of the value of wild rice, those uh, farmers, you know, those pirates, those, those economic thieves, they started undercutting each other. And they went out to California and started growing paddy rice out there. But, you know, they're not proud farmers that say California paddy-grown rice. They shipped it back to Minnesota and put two Indians in a canoe on the label and tried to pass it off as real wild rice involving Indians because that's where the real value is. And so so then you end up with California not being the only place anymore and where it is in the economy and different things. And so most of the Minnesota places, they've gone out of business and they've gone out of business for two or three reasons. One of the reasons is because the nature of wild rice and them being where wild rice grows, they get what they call volunteer plants. So when they plant a strain, it might be there for four or five years. In California, it dies off because it doesn't have that cold weather to help it you know, go through the cycles it needs to, to recede. And so you end up with everybody wanting to sell their crop as Indian wild rice. Now, why is that? You know, that is where the true value is. 
And that's what people want, natural, organic, something that helps out the poor people, the indigenous, the, the real traditional stuff. But everybody who's making a dime off it, you know, is trying to sell, sell you something else. And the DNR is in with them. The Department of Agriculture is in with them. They're trying to promote paddy rice because they think there's a profit in it. At whose expense? Our expense. Yeah, right. And I think, so that brings up like the last big question that I wanted to ask is like, what can someone who listens to this podcast do to support you and to support people working with wild rice? Well, you know, wild rice is a many faceted thing. And so right now, wild rice is trying to protect the, the waterways suing DNR. Wild rice is probably going to be suing the PCA right now before we talked. And part of the reason I'm behind on things this morning, because I was behind yesterday too, but don't mind me, um, is that I'm also chasing money, which I, I refuse to normally do, but it's so important right now because of all the frack outs and the um, aquifer breach that hasn't been able to be contained and other things, we are having to buy our own thermal imaging flyover of the entire pipeline so that we can identify where all the frack outs that have been walked away from by MPCA and DNR and Enbridge. And then we can start monitoring and be prepared to monitor them more in the spring when we have the aquifers recharged with the spring melt and, and things like that. And so right now, this first flight was originally estimated to be about $100,000. We've been able to, you know, go through a process a little bit more, but right now I've got a bid for $52,000 and I'm trying to put together a co-funding on that. And that's just to do a fly over the entire route to make sure that we understand where all the water damages are. If they're all at water crossings, fine, but I doubt that that's where they all are because of what went on. And so we need to identify those places. We need to have a baseline to look at, to compare next spring when we do those flyovers. And we need to be able to identify those and target those places with our drones that have a lot of the same equipment. Ron Turney's been doing a lot of it so that we can see what's actually happening in real time. Because if the PCA isn't going to do its job about the Clean Water Act and DNR isn't going to you know, do anything more, then we have to sue those people. And technically, while I haven't sued Enbridge yet, when we go to federal court, they may be sued also because they'll be the deep pocket in the conspiracy to deprive us of our civil rights. You know, and yeah. DNR and PCA, they've already shown that they're in cahoots with them and that they're not defending the resources. All we have to do is go out and collect the information, prove that they're not doing their job, challenge them to do their job, challenge them to do some flyovers. Otherwise, we're going to take them out. And while we normally support the, the democratic part of the process, I think, you know, I don't know that we're going to support anybody anymore. We can't trust anybody, Republicans or the Democrats, and we'll just have to badmouth them all. Yeah. You know, part of third party, you know, Winona was part of the Ralph Nader and stuff, you know, um, back in 96 and um, 2000 Green Party. Yeah, yeah. Like is, is honor the earth, the place that if like someone were to make a donation that would help, help you, or is there a, that's probably the most direct place to help me because Winona and I, you know, we've been working on these wild rice issues all of, you know, most all of our lives. We've known each other most of our lives and we're not going anywhere. We're just getting deeper into the fight. So whoever sends money to help me, and there's been other organizations, you know, like you're talking about the, the RI that um, did that other event with us, you know, that was a very nice event. And I'm glad you were able to see it because it helps people understand what we're doing right now. We're kind of on a scientific front to gather more information, to support our litigation, 
as well as to support the scientific efforts to make sure that we know more about what's going on to prevent any further damage. You know, whether or not people want to think line three is, and I've heard the words, you know, done deal. They said that for seven years. It wasn't a done deal for seven years. You know, it doesn't mean that it can't be stopped. It just means that nobody's figured out how to do it yet. And I think differently than other people. I, I look at our rights differently. I look at the law differently. Um, and I suspect there's a way to, for us to do something that hasn't been done before because we're not relying on the state and we're not relying on the federal government. Send us your money. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to put it to good use. We yeah. are at the top of the watershed or the three watersheds. If we're not protecting the very top of the three watersheds, everybody downstream is relying on that. Yeah. Everybody. Right. Right. That's a lot of North America. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, awesome. So is there anything else that you feel like I've missed or that you want to say before I, I stop recording here? Well, I'm glad you're, you know, working on the copper nickel aspect. You know, we, we are concerned, you know, especially about Sandy Lake and that's what we fought for at the PUC level. And we're going to have to fight for it here. And, and so we know that rights of monoma are going to be part of that. And we know that we don't have all the resources to the financial resources to do what we're doing, but we seem to have the best on the ground game in Indian country. And, and I think that's, what's going to make the difference partnering up with Indians and Indian tribes and Indian people who have rights that can't be um, ignored by the federal government or by the state and that we're willing to use them. And so we are the best bet right now. And I think that people should be looking to help model, you know, help us model our, our product, if you want to call it that, our service to show where and how this can be applied in other places. We're, we're the lead, but we want to help other places. I believe in rights of salmon. I believe in rights of trees. I believe in rights of Mayinga and the wolf, you know, rights of Nibi, the water. You know, if that's what we have to spell out and do in tribal court with treaty rights, I think all the tribes are up for it. We just need to help people see it's successful and viable and that it's a good investment. Yeah, it sounds like this the the rights of Monoman could be a really groundbreaking, really groundbreaking that, thing. Right. That's what everybody says. Those are the exact words groundbreaking. They're stunned. <laughs> I guess there's there's a little bit of irony in calling it groundbreaking, but how about that? Yeah. How, yeah. Right. There's a lot of irony. One of my attorney friends, you know. He, uh, he works just in regular stuff and all. And he said, you know, Frank, I don't know if I get this rights of Monoman and how it works. And he said, it's just like corporate law, except wild rice is alive. Yeah. Right. 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 I, I've got a better. Alive. Right. Yeah. Right. That's the same with the fish, the rights of the fish, the rights of the tree, the rights of the wolf. You know, water is a little harder for people to kind of wrap their head around. But all the living things can be understood when they're died, when they're in peril, when they're sick. You know, those are our barometers. Those are our relations. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something. Many thanks to Frank Bebo for his work and for his time on this interview. Please consider supporting him and the work that he and his community are doing to protect the clean waters of the Northwoods. You can do that in several ways. First, if you donate to this show on Patreon, where there's a link at uofpod.org, 50% of your support over the next two months will go straight to Honor the Earth. You can also donate there directly at honorearth.org. That's even better. Or, if you feel the call, there's always water to protect and a need for people to show up and oppose risky developments. And I want to be clear. I don't think this is a political left-versus-right issue. 
I think it's common sense that we shouldn't drill, mine, or pump until we are sure that we won't be destroying valuable and well-loved resources. We have to balance extraction with all the other parts of the economy, be that tourism, wild rice, or even the immense costs of cleanup. But what we can't afford to do is to stumble into projects like mining and pipelines without fully acknowledging and planning for the risks. So I'm not advocating for a knee-jerk opposition to all mining development. More so, it's that I'm advocating against knee-jerk approval for any extractive project, no matter the documented risks. Anyways, I'm always happy to discuss this with anyone, especially if you disagree with me. My contact info is at uofpod.org. music you heard today was the song Arizona Moon by the Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled episodes, starting with Wisconsin's caves and what they can tell us about climates of the past. Really cool stuff, and I hope to see you again then. Bye.